Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, it's just me and Dr. Wang here to wrap up yet another in our long line of mini-series. This last one covering the sections, uh, the joint double NSCNS sections within the neurosurgical community. Uh, Dr. Wang, this has been another whirlwind tour through our field, talking with a number of leaders from various sub-disciplines. I know that I learned a lot, and I imagine it was fun for you to talk with your colleagues who have kind of gone a little further down a specific path within neurosurgery as you have yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to say that this mini-series brought us across another milestone with our listeners. And we passed, I believe it was last week, 200,000 unique listens, uh, which is really just a fantastic uh, milestone considering I, I think our audience is fairly narrow and very specifically interested in what we do, right, professionally. Right. And you have to imagine that, I mean, some of our regular episodes may have appealed to the audience as a whole within our country or various different uh, health-related occupations. But this series has really drilled down deeply into neurosurgery for neurosurgeons. And just looking over our stats, we've maintained a a constant level of listenership throughout it. Um, And, you know, our, our hats go off and our gratitude goes out to all of you out there listening who have stuck with us through this very narrowly focused miniseries. Yeah, and I would say that I've gotten some very nice comments, text messages, phone calls, in-person messages, and emails, of course, about how, you know, not to sound self-serving, but listening to this podcast has helped some people stay connected through the pandemic, especially in those those states that are particularly locked down with less sort of interaction. I think for some people, this has been a great way to have an interchange. And, and again, we welcome you guys to email us as listeners to give us suggestions and advice and feedback on our uh, on our venue here. Yeah, I, I have to say that it is really heartwarming that this show can serve not only to connect people with their community and all all their friends across the country and around the world who they've been missing in this past year, but also, um, as I always say, from the resident perspective, from the trainee perspective, really give some insights into the various offerings of different subspecialties within neurosurgery. I will also say an interesting component of this whole experience, and not just interviewing the surgeons we've had on, but thinking about the different disciplines and thinking about the aspects of those disciplines that we discussed throughout this series, um, I think we've all noticed in our time with the neurosurgery some differences not just in the surgeries, but in the surgeons. Um, Would you say, Dr. Wang, there's maybe a stereotypical personality to each of these fields? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I, I know I'll probably get in trouble or we'll get in trouble for this, but as we look through the nine sections and the section chairs that we were able to interview in the past uh, two months, you know, it's it's fascinating to me. If, if we take out the, the sections that are not technically specific, so that would be, I guess, history and the women in neurosurgery, that leaves us with the other groups. And, and I, let me just start with, with spine because I'm a spine surgeon. I've basically uh, been a spine surgeon for two decades now. And I, I know that spine makes up something like 70% of all of neurosurgical practice, but there is definitely a stereotype of what spine surgeons are like. And, and, and I often 
give talks and I talk about how, you know, we as spine surgeons are kind of like neuropods, meaning pods like orthopods, right? And yeah. so we have to learn all those orthopedic uh, elements of, of how you do biomechanics, how you put in instrumentation. And, you know, I, I heard a great tidbit that the uh, average glove size of a neurosurgeon is a seven. And the average glove size of an orthopedic surgeon is eight and a half. And if that gives you some idea just by hand size of what the surgeries look like, then I think spine surgeons are known for being a little bit more sort of physically robust, uh, a little bit, maybe a little bit more uh, crude and basic, almost more blue collar in their approach uh, in general to life. And, um, and sort of able to handle really big volumes, whether it be seeing a ton of patients in clinic or cranking through a ton of of heavy duty cases that can wear you down physically. And, you know, spine is where a lot of revenue is generated too, right? And you have to deal with uh, companies and, and other disciplines like, uh, like, uh, like physiatry. So I think spine is, is a sort of like a journeyman's, like a blue collar version of neurosurgery. Does that, is that too offensive? Well, I don't think so. I mean, the, the neuropod comment, I, I've always loved that joke. And I guess when I was in medical school thinking about, you know, how, how close the, neurosurgeons who deal with spine are with the, as you said, you work in the orthopedic space. We had a joke about um, trying to match into these highly competitive specialties. Obviously, neurosurgery is very competitive. Orthopedics is also very competitive. And we used to say that to successfully match into orthopedics, you have to hit the ortho 500. And that was where your the sum of your USMLE step one score and your max on the bench press had to be 500 or greater. <laughs> And I, I think that rings true with you know everything you pointed out about spinal neurosurgery. But perhaps we could turn then, and I guess from you know, ad admittedly from the perspective of a spinal neurosurgeon, Doctor Wang, what would you say are some of the stereotypical uh, traits of a tumor surgeon? Yeah, the tumor guys are interesting, right? Because Steve Giannata used to say when I was a resident that if you're a tumor surgeon and you're not operating on dead people, then you're not operating. And that sounds so cold. But there is this thing about, you know, this is a disease process that has a extremely high natural history of lethality. And so because of that, the tumor surgeons, by and large, have sort of been lab rats, right? They're the guys that are busy trying to do NIH-funded research, uh, genomics, uh, and they have to work with a lot of other disciplines like oncology, right, where they may be calling the shots, uh, radiation and medical oncology and hospice and all that. And so they have to be kind of like rabbi-ish. They, they can't be as uneven in temperament, if you will. But they're, they're very nerdy, too, in a different way than some of the other neurosurgeons. They tend to be very, very research-focused. Uh, and and the, 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 the dig on them, of course, is you know, all you need to do the tumor section is a brain spoon, right? And that, that, that is, there actually was a spoon at USC, a, a sterilized spoon that was available. And if you look at the, the Cushing, um, I'm sorry, the Penfield one, two, three, and four, it's almost like a version of that. But uh, that would be sort of my, my dig on the tumor guys. Sure. And I, I mean, I think that holds true having gone through the interview process and getting to know students and residents around the country is that it, as you said, the, the tumor folks tend to attract the laboratory, basic science, uh, wet bench oriented folks. And they really are the biologists within neurosurgery or, or even the gardeners, you could say, where they think about cell populations and what's growing within a space. Whereas kind of as, as you touch on the spine surgeons are more carpenters or, or mechanics. Um, maybe then if, if we're going to take these analogies, a carpenter, a gardener, 
Um, let's talk about the electricians. What do you, what, what's your take on functional surgeons? <laughs> so, so JP, I think I mentioned before that I, I wanted to be a functional neurosurgeon when I was a resident, I was interested in pain and, um, I was actually told there's no way I'll fit in with that group of people. <laughs> and these are the true nerds. These are the, the, the nerds that are, I, I don't want to say they're a little bit spectrumy, like autistic, but they're, they are, they are very different because they're. There, the need for the, almost like an OCD level of, of concern about what they're physically doing to people and the fact that their surgeries are tend to be so small, right? right. There's not a lot of technical bravado that you can see, at least to the naked eye, when you're doing functional neurosurgery, at least it, with the exception maybe of epilepsy, right? Some of, the, some of those resections can be quite sophisticated. But again, broad strokes, really broad strokes, they are the super nerds. They're the uber nerds. And I think that came out very nicely during this mini-series. And, and they're probably the future of our specialty, right? They, they hold the greatest promise of, of, all the, of all the subspecialties, I think. Right. Um, well, then let's take this to its logical conclusion. Uh, carpenter, biologist, gardener, uh, electrician, and how about the plumbers? What, what do you think about the vascular neurosurgeons among us? Yeah, right. The plumbers. Yeah. So the CV section is so interesting because it has changed because of endovascular, but I don't think there's another section or subspecialty where they've been more inspiring to young people. In other words, if, if you talk to the interview candidates, the vast majority are going to tell you something like, one day I want to be a skull-based vascular surgeon because it's like the right stuff, right? right? It's technically like maybe the highest, in some ways, the highest level of achievement. So it's it's very inspiring in that way. But the fact that the plumbing is so critical means that the surgeries that are done are so potentially devastating. And so if you were to say, wow, t stack up all these surgeons and say, who has had a patient die in their own hands, right? Acts of, of, of commission, right? Mm. Then they stand out in that regard. And so you need a special kind of a personality for that. And I don't want to say it's a coldness or sociopathy, but I've definitely noticed that most of the best cerebrovascular surgeons I know have that feature that they are able to walk away from a person who died intraoperatively, if you will, or was destroyed. And it, and it almost like it didn't touch them. Whereas like a, me as a spine surgeon, like I'm like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be rattled for, for months. Right. So I think that is a very important and interesting and, and necessary feature. It's kind of like that movie about Neil Armstrong, uh, with, with Ryan Gosling, right? Like it's, uh, it's, it's like, it's like they can't be shaken, you know? Right. And now th this is an interesting thought I had just listening to you talk about these different tribes, if you will, within neurosurgery. But what do you think of what might be a, a tribe that's uh, being relegated to the past, which is not the tumor surgeon, not the vascular surgeon, but the skull-based surgeon, who's a master of a region rather than a pathology? Do you think we're going to still see these folks with generations to come? Or is increasing specialization kind of making that a surgeon of the past? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I was talking to one of our residents who's going to do – she's fantastic, technically amazing, going to do multiple fellowships because I think of, of what you're saying, which is that most of this, the skull base has fallen into the CV section world, right? Even though there's a North American Skull Base Society, it, it requires that microsurgical and, and, and skull base or bone removal skill set. So it tends to go together technically. I, I will say that that 
technical world is becoming so narrow. It used to be that people would just do this stuff a little bit dabble in it, but now you know, people are afraid to do it. So the cases are getting concentrated. So I do not think it will just disappear, although we've heard that that stated before that skull base will be a thing of the past. Right. And I mean, it, it is interesting to notice, at least in the various master surgeons I've had the privilege to meet on the interview trail in training or talk to with this podcast, it, it's a different kind of personality somewhere between that tumor surgeon and that vascular surgeon type you talked about. There's a different kind of personality that is the skull base neurosurgeon. Um, but maybe we could close this little tiptoe through the subspecialties with uh, what, what's your take on the stereotypical trauma neurosurgeon? Obviously, many people cover trauma call and, and get these calls in the middle of the night. But, but there are those among us who specialize and think deeply and are drawn to emergent and trauma and critical care within neurosurgery. What are those folks like? Yeah, it's very interesting, right? Because they're kind of an eclectic group. They are also very usually research focused. They're very focused on bedside medicine because they have to deal with these patients for weeks on end or months even sometimes in ICU. Right. And I think that they're, they're just like the functional neurosurgeons, more neurologist almost sometimes than neurosurgeon. These folks tend to be like our ICU doctors, right? And, and, you know, I think that's going to change, though. I think that the the ability to intervene is going to improve, uh, whether it's through neuroregeneration, stem cell treatments, or whatnot. I think it's a very exciting area, but it is it is kind of like a motley crew of folks that do this stuff. Well, and uh, Dr. Wang, if we, we covered all these various uh, technical subspecialties, maybe we could think about groupings by patients rather than pathologies. Uh, we've joked about this and talked about it before on the show, but describe for me, if you will, the quintessential pediatric neurosurgeon. Yeah, peds is interesting, right? Because peds neurosurgeons, as we heard, tend to do all the different techniques, spine, cranial, a little bit of functional. And it, I think ped my hat's off to them. Pediatric neurosurgeons have to have uh, a very deep sense of compassion to deal with pediatricians, right? <laughs> Forget about the patients, and um, and they have that. They have that ability to 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 have an equanimity in terms of the interactions, and you know you cannot lose your temper in a pediatric operating room in a pediatric hospital. It's not tolerated. Whereas, you know, <laughs> neurosurgeons throw instruments sometimes as vascular or spine surgeons, like that's just not tolerated. And I think that the, the, the personality usually is an old, it takes more years. They're older, they're more, they're more even keeled. Um, and, and again, like uh, driven by a real sense of purpose for the patient, right? This is something that is unique to what they do because they're treating so many patients, not just the, not just the, the pediatric patient, but their families. And again, my hat's really off to the peds folks. Right. And, you know, we, we all pat ourselves on the back for having a good bedside manner dealing with a patient that has a newly diagnosed tumor in their family or dealing with a, a spine patient who's been living with chronic disabling pain or weakness. But think about doing all those things with parents and siblings and a, a young, confused child all at once. Uh, the bedside manner of these of pediatric neurosurgeons is just incredible. Um, and then to wrap up this list, uh, let's, let's talk about the surgeons among us who treat patients of all ages uh, who deal with pain, who treat, with, uh, treat pain in all of its various manifestations and all various kinds of patients. Yeah, it's a very narrow subset of people who really specialize in that. I would say they mostly fall under functional or spine, and uh, and they are different in that regard. The ones that, that, that are driven to do this specialty or, or really, you know, 
put themselves out as pain doctors, they have one of the most difficult burdens because patients who are in pain are suffering and they can be very challenging to deal with emotionally, psychologically, and socially. Um, so again, like the pediatric neurosurgeons, they have a special calling and, and there are just a handful of them out there. There are probably less than uh, 70 real pain specialists as neurosurgeons. Mm. So, so again, another very, very unique uh, category and, and I think a growth area as well. Right. Well, I, I guess having drilled down on the ways that these various communities within neurosurgery are, are different and have their archetypal features, perhaps we could zoom out and look at the ways that we're all the same or at least all connected right now as we're continuing our journey towards normalization and recovery after the last year we've all, all been through as a community, um, both just as people socially in, in our nation and also as clinical and, and medical practitioners. Um, what are things looking like in Miami and your practice and among the colleagues that you discuss things with about getting back to some degree of normalcy after the pandemic shutdowns? Yeah, JP, I'm gl glad you brought that up. It's super exciting. Uh, la uh, last week, we had uh, an in-person meeting, one of the first, ISAS, which is the International Society for Advancement of Spine Surgery here in Miami at the Lowe's Hotel. There are about 330 attendees. They had to actually cap the number of vendors or industry sponsors and surgeons. It went really well. People really, really appreciated the ability to shake somebody's hand, see them in person, get back together and have an engagement. I, I for one, am really excited to do in-person podcast recordings again. I think we lost a little bit by doing this via internet, although it's it's made some things easier. Um, the AANS meetings coming up in Orlando in August, August 21st to the 25th. We are super excited about the program. We're super excited to see each other again. And I think you are, and, and I are planning to do a lot of recordings during that meeting, if, if, if you'll be there, JP. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more that, uh, as is true in normal life and any conversation, these interviews and these podcast episodes just hold so much more emotional weight and clarity to the conversation when you can look someone in the eye and discuss these oftentimes highly intellectual, highly emotional, and, and deep issues and questions uh, that, that touch on the various aspects of our field and, and what we do for our patients. Um, I'll say on the normal side of life things, here in Chicago, uh, we're recording this end of May. Uh, we just recently had kind of adjustments to the guidelines for our city as vaccination rates increase, and Chicago is normalizing. Things are opening back up. People are back out walking along the river and along the lake as, as the weather warms up. And it's just, as, as a human, it's just warming and, and very pleasant to see things uh, going back to some kind of normalcy. Case volumes are back up in the hospitals. Um, things are getting better, and it's uh, really heartening to see that. Yeah, I think there'll be a lot of pent-up demand. I mean, I was at a Cadavera course this past weekend in Las Vegas, and there was tremendous, I mean, it's like, like a year and a half almost lost of learning. People who said, well, you know, I wanted to pick up this technique. I wanted to go do a, a lab to get my hands on this, and I just wasn't able to during the pandemic. And now people, like, they're, they're really thirsting for that knowledge, and, and technology has advanced during COVID. So I think that just like those folks who missed out on their graduations and all that, it's very sad to have lost that time, but now we kind of have to make up for it, right? Absolutely. Uh, the only way ahead is to go ahead and to keep going with the normal days that we have. Um, speaking of normalization, for our listeners and our audience at home, uh, having wrapped up this mini-series, I believe, Dr. Wang, we're planning for the next few weeks, maybe about a month, 
to return to our normal episodes, various topics with various guests, um, to kind of have a break from these themed series of episodes that we've been doing for a few months now and, and get back to the good old neurosurgery podcast where who knows what we're going to be talking about next week. Exactly. I'm look, looking forward to it. Um, the oral boards uh, just happened a couple weeks ago. And tune in for an episode coming up on the oral boards and what that means. A lot of changes have come. There's a lot of concern out there about what that means. And I think for the younger folks, it's better to know ahead of time. And I think uh, I just want to preview that episode by, by you thinking about if you're going to be a neurosurgeon, you want to be board certified. What are the tricks? What are the issues? The whole format has changed significantly. And you know, uh, listeners, that you will get unfiltered uh, and free advice, tips and tricks from Dr. Wang, as always. So I will personally be very excited for that episode to get advice for uh, my years to come of training. But uh, what's around the corner after those episodes, Dr. Wang? Do we have another series cooking up? Yeah, we had been recording this uh, during the pandemic, which is about neurosurgical families. And again, this is so narcissistic because everything's related to neurosurgery, of course. But this is about how we in our personal lives interact with our families because it's, it's such a rich space that gets uh, that gets discussed maybe not often enough, right? Absolutely. I mean, if you think about everything that we do with our patients, with the diseases that they suffer from, um, not only the way that our occupation affects us and our interactions with our families, but the way we interact with their families as well. The issues that we bring home, the joys as well as the pains, the successes and the failures. Um, I can't wait to really drill into how various surgeons from various specialties approach these issues, integrate them and handle them within their own lives, and hopefully uh, learn some tricks for myself and, and how to cope with these issues when I come home from work. Well, we're looking forward to those episodes, and thank you to all of our listeners for supporting us through the pandemic as we come out of this, hopefully, and emerge. We look forward to seeing you at the NS meeting in August of this year in Orlando.